What's up, guys? Welcome to the Humans of MarTech podcast. His name is John Taylor. My name is Phil Gamash. Our mission is to future-proof the humans behind the tech so you can have a successful and happy career in marketing. What's up, everyone? Today, we have the pleasure of sitting down with Daryl Alfonso, Director of Marketing Strategy and Operations at Indeed.com. Daryl began his career at Trumpia, wearing multiple hats, and later joined Leaf Group to lead a team focused on demand gen and marketing automation. He then took on the role of Director of Global Marketing at Hitwise, a data enrichment startup, and later served as Director of Comms at the American Marketing Association, focusing on educational content. He then ventured into the enterprise world into the esteemed role of Global Marketing Operations Lead at AWS, Amazon Web Services, the widely adopted cloud data platform. Daryl's also a course instructor at MarTech Alliance for a brand new eight-week course on all things marketing ops. He's also the author of the MarTech Tech handbook covering effective use and scaling of MarTech with case studies and expert insights. And most recently, he's moved over to Indeed.com as the Director of Marketing Strategy and Operations. Daryl, thanks so much for your time today. I feel like this is a long time in the making. We probably should have had you on years ago, but truly appreciate all the, the love on social you've given us over the years. So thanks for being here. No, likewise, I, I'm so uh, honored to be here. A longtime listener, first time caller. I guess <laughs> uh, this your the this this podcast and you know the work that both you and and JT have been doing I think has been a great service to the community and to the profession too. So Amazing. so thank yeah, you back so at much. you. I appreciate appreciate the work. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Knack. Launching an email or landing page in your marketing automation platform shouldn't feel like assembling an airplane mid-flight with no instructions, but too often, that's exactly how it feels. Knack is like an instruction set for campaign creation, from establishing brand guardrails and streamlining your approval process to Knack's no-code drag-and-drop editor to help you build emails and landing pages. No more having to stop midway through your campaign to fix something simple. Knack lets you work with your entire team in real time and stops you having to fix things mid-flight. Check them out at knack.com, that's K-N-A-K, and tell them we sent you. To prepare for this interview, we actually developed a Daryl GPT. We fed it your MarTech handbook PDF as well as a bunch of your LinkedIn posts. So allowed me and JT to have a chance to have conversations with you or, or with your content ahead of this. So hopefully you've got some interesting uh, topics and questions there, but uh, JT, I'll let you kick it away. Yeah, thanks so much for being on the show, Daryl, and, and the awesome introduction, Phil. Um, Daryl, you're the keynote speaker to close out Mopsapalooza this year, and you walk through walk folks through your new pillars of Mops success pretty fascinating uh, technology management. So platform ops and engineering, uh, strat ops, budget and planning, enablement and PMO. So like the PM process design and adoption, and then BI plus insights. So the reporting and analytics piece. Um, I'd love for you to actually walk the listeners through your take on strat ops, like the budget planning component of this. Yeah. So I'll give you a little bit of background. And this is, it's interesting because some of this, some of this work that I was doing on the, on the, four pillars was a little bit controversial. The original four pillars of marketing operations were heavily focused on technology. You know, my proposal or call for this sort of evolution of, of the pillars was really to sort of step out of that bubble and into a place of better strategy and, and a better position to make, to drive impact within the business. So that was like the, 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 sort of underpinning of what I wanted to do with the four pillars. And, you know, I worked closely with Mike Rizzo and many other like uh, marketing ops leaders um, to develop this, which I'm, which I'm super, super excited about, um, you know, driving throughout, throughout our profession. I'm really excited about the strat ops or strategy ops portion of the pillar because it signals the sort of like union of the old guard and the new guard. A lot of people may not know this, but marketing operations only referred to technology management in the last sort of like decade. You know, traditionally, marketing ops meant planning. Traditionally, it meant budget, like mm -hmm. all of the behind the scenes stuff. Only recently has it been, has it been, you know, uh, uh, has Mar MarTech been a big focus of it? And I think that, you know, with this new sort of framework, it signals the, the, the union of both. 
Um, so, so StratOps, I think, on paper, um, and this is, you know, super, I, I'm, I'm really excited too, because um, my team at work, this is just something that happened recently, I've also started to now oversee that function, which I'm really, really excited about. So it's, it's like, not only am I starting to chart it out for, for what I think that the, the, the industry should do, but it's, it's interesting to see it mirror in my own career. Um, um, but I'll, I'll, I'll get to the point. So, so it's budget planning and, um, you know, organizational design. That's kind of fuzzy. In reality, what it means is just answering some really interesting questions that uh, a marketing team has to, has to figure out, you know, like, like centralized or decentralized. Um, how do the marketers use the tech stack? How does, how does legal become involved in, uh, Brandon legal become involved in approving and reviewing the campaigns that go out the door? You know, I think that these these tough, interesting questions have been randomly sort of scattered okay. across the organization. I think the the StratOps function is is you know a call to bring that together to really smart people that can you know answer those questions in a really thoughtful way. Very cool. I think that like StratOps is definitely underrated. It's interesting that you started talking about like how it used to be kind of behind the scenes stuff, like more budget planning and then tech, just like all the MarTech stuff kind of got lumped into that. And I feel like the platform stuff, like the tools focus is really like what kind of shines in, in, in marketing ops and why a lot of folks kind of like uh, gravitate to that. Um, and I want to like talk about the, the difference between the two, like platform versus strategy. Like there's obviously a ton in marketing ops, right? But like from a career advice standpoint, like do you have that advice to folks like focus on platform first or on strategy? Um, like one thing that spurred this question is that like you you have a ton of followers on, on LinkedIn. You actually get a lot of engagement on your surveys and the polls that you you put out. So there's there's one that I'm particularly interested in talking about because uh, they kind of have contrasting results when we talk about platform versus strategy. So the first poll was, which skill has defined your marketing ops career the most? You had platform, project management, data, and coding as the options there. And platform won out by a long shot, like almost half of people picked platform as the thing that benefited them the most in their ops careers. But the second poll was asking the strongest skill set. Is it tech slash platform, strategy, process, or data? And the winner, interestingly, wasn't tech or platform. It wasn't even second. Strategy was uh, by far the winner and process was the second one. So it's, it's interesting to me that uh, what's benefited folks the most is platform and the tech knowledge, but it's not actually seen as their strongest skill set. So for all the marketers out there, Daryl, like uh, my leading question is like, what should they prioritize? Learning a platform that might not be used at their next company or learning the strategy that's kind of foundational to any company? Yeah, this is a really good one. The way that I wrote the first question, which is which skill has benefited your marketing ops career the most? Um, when I was writing that, I, I started to think about like the, the, the whole timeline of my career and kind of what made the most difference. I also landed on platform knowledge. And I think that that's what, what many people were, were thinking about when they answered the question and the advice that I get, and I'll, I'll get to why I think they're different, but the advice that I like to give is that. At, at the beginning of your career, it's really good to focus on in-demand skills and technical skills because it provides a lot of job security, um, especially in, in times like these. And I remember, I remember like, like once you get to that subject matter expert sort of level, um, I think that you, you usually should be able to get a job anywhere. And that, that I think a lot of people don't think about as, as you know, when people think about historically thought about job security, I think they thought about working for the government or, you know, becoming a doctor or a nurse or something like that. I, I, I think that, you know, for us, in-demand skills um, and experience is the job security. The other question was, as a marketing ops professional, what is your strongest skill set? And many people answered strategy. Sometimes I think we answer questions aspirationally too. Versus like, what would we like our strongest skills set to be versus <laughs> what we do in our day to day? 
So that I think might be might be part of it. But but, you know, surveys, I think, are, you know, there's pros and cons to surveys. There's there's a lot of like people read into questions. People read, might might read questions differently. So I, I think that that might might skew the results a little bit or have contrasting results. One of the things that I kind of came up with as I was just, you know, thinking about this question is I would say. Until you're a subject matter expert, uh, you know, and that could, that can be defined differently. I think 75% of your efforts and time should be focused on developing in-demand technical skills and then 25% on the fundamentals and the, and the, you know, sort of strategy. Now, once you hit that subject matter expert level, I think you flip it. I think hmm. 75% should be devoted to strategy and 25% to maintaining your technical skills. The challenge that I see across the industry and, and even myself sometimes is that we keep that 75, 25 throughout. And then we start to run into whether run into upper limits of, of our impact and like our, our sort of what we're, what were the results that we're driving because we've maintained that same level. Mm -hmm. um, and once you flip it, you know, cause I, I your, your skills don't, uh, you know, uh, uh decrease that quickly over time. Mm -hmm. I think once you flip it, um, and I've experienced this myself, there's, there's almost like a surge. Like it's, it's, it, you're the, the impact that you drive, um, the career progression that, that, that you, you can experience, I think is really great once you start to make that change. I have a bit of a follow-up question on that. Um, you know, as you're talking, I was thinking a little bit about like the transferable knowledge that you may have from one platform to the next. Like in my previous life, I was a Marketo person and then I moved to different companies and I was HubSpot and I was like, oh, you know what? Like it was actually quite easy learning both platforms, I felt like. But you, you also said something I thought was interesting around that strategy division between strategy and learning. How would you form this? for somebody who recognizes, for instance, that they want to be an individual contributor. We've talked a little bit about like on our show about like people managing versus individual contributors. Do you think what you were saying there kind of holds true for the folks who are like me, who actually prefer the end being an individual contributor? Yeah. Oh, a couple things. So, so I think that, and I've, I've experienced this too, the, the, some of the core technologies is the same when you're looking at different platforms, whether it's, you know, one marketing automation platform versus the next versus CRM, you know? So, so for example, a lot of these are relational databases. Mm -hmm. So those, con the concepts are, are at the, at, at, uh, at the, at its core, very similar. So, um, that's why I think it's a little bit easy to transfer, um, skills because you're looking at it from the same lens, mm -hmm. just that the skins look different. Um, or like maybe some of the workflows are different. When it comes to career, a your your career and what you want to do on a day-to-day -day basis is extremely personal and unique. So for some, you know, you could like your dream job could be logging in only a couple hours a, a day or a week and working on some beach. And that's like your, <laughs> that's your utopia, you know what I mean? And then for some, it could be leading a large team and driving a lot of impact for a lot of customers. So, so that, that I think is something that you really have to, to think about. Like what, do, what does career growth mean for you? I will say that um, I do hope that we get to a place where companies chart the course of an individual contributor much better. Mm -hmm. I think that today, especially at, you know, some of the large tech companies, they do it pretty well for engineers and product managers. Um, so you end up, you know, you have, you can have very high levels of, of indi uh, individual contributors that are very respected throughout the organization. I'm talking principal engineer, principal product manager, distinguished engineer, mm -hmm. and not only not only is it like does the person like merit um titles like this but it's highly respected within the company and the pay is high too mm -hmm. all of those make it so that hey if i don't want to become a people manager i don't have to i can continue to grow my impact in marketing it's not really like that yeah in marketing mm -hmm. 
you know, your your trajectory usually depends on how many people you're managing, you know, and are you managing people that are managing people? And there's a very singular route, it seems. And I don't think that's doing our industry any favors. And it means that if, let's say, you're not interested in becoming a people manager or leading people, you're forced into that role. And that's, that's how we get bad bosses. That's how we get bad managers. And I do hope that, you know, we start to do things to change that. Yeah, I love that take. Obviously, I'm a little bit biased there. Um, I want to kind of talk about no-code tools as well and get your take on some of this. Um, it, it, one of the things as an individual contributor I learned about myself is that I love being in code. I taught myself some JavaScript, some HTML, and CSS. This is the kind of way that I've gone. And I love no-code tools, like being able to build websites with drag-and-drop builders is awesome. However, I've kind of got an opinion. I'm curious where you would land on this is that it's not actually an under a replacement for understanding how things work. I think within the marketing organization, we still need some people who have subject matter expertise who can translate uh, this knowledge, whether it's working with engineering teams is kind of a bridge. Uh, and I kind of was talking to Phil offline about this, but the idea of building a model home, it, you walk through it, it looks really good. It's got all the things in there that you'd expect windows and stuff, but often the fundamental things like the plumbing and wiring and any customizations often missing. Like don't try to open the window. It's actually nailed shut. Um, <laughs> so I'm curious on your take on how no code tools evolve and what types of capabilities marketing teams need internally to make sure that they get the most out of these tools uh, to drive the efficiencies that I think like no code tools are awesome. Like, let me make that very clear. I love them. Um, but I do think that oftentimes they're deployed in such a way that uh, folks don't, they underestimate how much they're going to have to go under the hood and tweak them at the end of the day. If you think about it, you know, there have been for a long time, um, you know, like sort of front end email and landing page, no code tools forever. But the, the need or the necessity for someone that knows HTML and CSS and JavaScript hasn't really gone away. Mm -hmm. So I, I think I think about it from that. One way that I like to think about this is that I think that tech can be a little bit of a bubble sometimes where, you know, if you're at a SaaS company or a startup, all of this stuff is just what we know, you know, using these great tools and tech and and the latest technology to do our work is kind of like commonplace. but you know, what percentage of, of, of we are, are is tech of all the, all the businesses across, you know, globally, like a much smaller percentage, like less than half. So, you know, um, like, like, like a, I like to think th this was something funny that, that, or interesting, uh, an interesting analogy that, that I saw that when we were working at AWS and you kind of think, you kind of think that all businesses use cloud technologies. Mm -hmm. But it's it's not the case. Like like it's almost to the state where we're like, hey, why would you use anything else? But I just looked up a recent stat from Cloud Zero, I think, and it's it's something around the fifty five percent mark mm -hmm. of people that are still using on on prem systems. Mm -hmm. You know, so so we're really in our own little area, yeah. right? Like like what what we do may start to lead the way, but it definitely doesn't isn't isn't indicative of what the rest. Of, of, of the world is doing. The other thing that I, I would say around no cold tools is that while I think you can accelerate some of the initial mm, results and deliver and, you know, ship things and deliver things a lot faster, when it comes to doing anything at scale, it usually requires engineering or development uh, talent um, just because of all the problems that happen and being able to personalize, maintain, and, you know, customize things for, uh, for, for a brand or for the customer experience. Um, the the, the, the no-code, low-code platforms aren't at that caliber just yet. Yeah, definitely agree. I think they're still a little bit over-promised with like the 
you don't need an engineer to do this or like no engineer required, no developer required. But it's funny that you say like, when we look at our MarTech stack, like how many of our tools are considered no code tools? And we actually pondered this in, in episode 32. Uh, we, we broke down the definition of no code in the marketing context as it's about breaking the dependency on technical experts as well as subject matter experts. But it's not just about using a UI to accomplish a job like a, a marketing automation platform, for example, but like we we don't think all Martech is no code, but you could probably make the argument that like it, it, it is very similar, at least like low code. But I want to cover your essential list of of Martech tools. So your 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 Martech handbook, your book, you outline the essential tools for any Martech stack. So you have nine core ones in there: CRM, CMS, marketing automation, uh, social media management, analytics, SEO customer data tools, project management, and then compliance and security. Um, if you had to peer into the future, five, 10 years, whatever, what does this list look like for Daryl? Is it is it way shorter? Are there, like, is there going to be consolidation? Are there key tools in there that just aren't going to be on your list today that will be in five or 10 years? Just curious your your take there. Like, what does what your crystal ball tell you? I think that in the future... The number of tools might be the same. I think just the mix might be a little bit different. So, and the reason for this is my theory is that MarTech as a the the as an ecosystem and as like an industry is cyclical. So I think that the mainstay, very large MarTech almost portfolio companies will always try to purchase the point solutions as a means to grab more share of wallet with the enterprise. It's where all of the money is. So, so, however, it is extremely expensive and labor-intensive, resource-intensive to maintain all of those customers um, and power all of those capabilities for all of those customers. So, so it leaves very little room for innovation. So innovation, I think, will all, almost always come from the smaller startup companies that are pioneering the way and that have a lot less risk, right? So they're, they're introducing innovations. There's not too much risk because they don't have the huge, you know, set of customers that they have to keep happy. Um, so, so it's going to be a cycle. It's always, you know, it, it, in, a, in a period of three years, the new entrants come in and then they're consolidated in. So back and forth, back and forth. So I, I think that that's a, a super interesting, interesting concept. I think that, um, the other thing when I think about like the future of the tech stack, you know, one, I think the number of tools will probably be the same because of the cyclical nature. It, the Just the capabilities might be a little bit different. One thing that I am pretty keen on is the data warehouse native technologies. Um, I've, I've seen that in our own business um, really help marketers get closer to the data and also create better experiences for customers. Um, so, so I would I I I'm wary of saying that the entire tech stack will in the future will be warehouse native technologies. But I will say that I am impressed with how much capabilities that it does bring us, and um, I'm excited to see where where that trend goes. Very cool. Yeah, we went down the rabbit hole on the on the warehouse native Martech stack, and I think there's a ton of excitement in in that space specifically. I I had heard you talk about the the cycle of consolidation and then new point solutions, so I was like specifically teeing you up for for that cycle. So I'm I'm happy that you <laughs> you dived into that. This episode is also brought to you by our friends at Census. Census is a data activation platform loved by marketing teams at Sonos, Canvas, Crocs, Notion, and more. As a customer, I've experienced the magic of Census firsthand. Their no-code audience hub and reverse ETL enable me to use our cloud data warehouse to power growth and create highly personalized customer journeys in all of my marketing platforms like Iterable and Google Ads. If you like the Humans of MarTech podcast graphics and you want your very own image, we're doing a monthly raffle for a personalized t-shirt designed by us. Enter to win at getcensus.com slash humans. Based on this cycle though, like if, if you're someone managing 
the MarTech stack at a company. Um, like your handbook mentioned this idea of managing MarTech like a product management uh, cycle, like managing MarTech like product. Uh, and, and some of the stuff like is like not really groundbreaking. We we kind of do this in a lot of companies already, um, like focusing on UX, cross-functional collaboration, agile management, blah, blah, blah. Um, but there is like one thing in your book that you mentioned that is really different uh, than, than I've seen companies managing MarTech that I'd love for you to explain further. And this is the idea of like strategic road mapping and not just for like individual campaigns and like initiatives that the marketing ops team has, but specifically a roadmap for the evolution of the MarTech stack itself with the the idea of like this cyclical nature of like having to keep points on like these new tools coming out and how do you integrate them and and, and all that stuff. So like, yeah, we'll, we'd love for you to unpack that idea. Yeah. And, you know, I forget, I don't know if either of you remember who coined this or who came up with this, but it's, a, but it's genius. And, and, and it was it was so interesting to hear this concept of like productizing your marketing or productizing your marketing operations, um, because when I would talk with other leaders and they would start to share that they were doing this, it was almost like like different marketing ops teams were implementing this mindset without talking to each other. And we all we all realized we were doing the same thing. So I think that that was super interesting. One theory is I think that because we work so closely with product. Um, we start to adopt some of the ways that we 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 work. Um, so I think that that might be interesting. So when it comes to a strategic roadmap, that might sound a little bit like maybe fancy. Um, but what I tell people, like, and what I tell my team is, a roadmap is just a list of things that you're going to do and the time that you're going to do it in. Um, over the course of a year or mul multiple years, if you have a really long term roadmap, and when you think this, this concept of um, productizing your marketing or marketing operations, what it really means is using the frameworks of product management in the way that you make decisions, like strategic decisions. The example that I like so often to share is like prioritization. So, so um, humans, I think, are not really great at prioritization um, without, you know, some critical thinking help. So, so uh, and, and especially when there's multiple factors involved, you know, if um, like, like if you're, if you're picking a hotel, right, if you're picking a hotel because you want to go to a conference and um, um, you, you prioritize based on one, one dimension, like pride, like a uh, proximity like how close it is to the conference. Well, if you pick the closest hotel to the conference, it might be like, you know, $1,000 a night in New York or whatever. And, but if you, if you, if you index toward just price, for example, so you, you forget about proximity and you think about price, then, then you might end up, you know, 20 miles away from the conference and the hotel doesn't have running water. You know, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't work out. So when we look at a map and we look at a list of hotels, in our minds, we're automatically prioritizing based on multiple factors. And when we look at when we look at our work, we have to do the same thing, except that it's a little bit too much for us to hold. So that's when we implement things like weighted scoring, you know. And that's and and product managers um, um, do this very well. They use different frameworks. Rice is a great framework, which is reach, impact, confidence, and effort. And you can calculate then a score based on multiple factors. For marketers, I came up with a slightly adjust, a different way of, of prioritization. So instead of reach, I put marketers in that column, right? So instead of like how many customers you're reaching, it's with our solutions, how many marketers are we helping? Hmm. And then for impact, instead of, you know, what's, what's, the, what's the impact on customers, like a product manager would do it, I put revenue. So, so what's, what, what factor of revenue would be, will we be driving this then once you calculate starts to give you a much more better idea of the different tasks on your plate, mm -hmm. um, when you're, when you're prioritizing your work, the, the, so, so, so prioritization comes into, to effect, uh, when you're doing product, uh, strategic road mapping. The other one is the long-term thinking approach. And 
The example I like to give on how to roadmap from a long-term perspective is the creation of a report, right? So typically reports are created haphazardly, right? You have a marketer, they ask for, hey, can I see conversions next month? Hey, can you change the view, filter the view? <laughs> and the next month, hey, can you add like a longer time frame so that I can see it and duplicate it, please, for like my, my other coworker? So at the end of that, at the end of that, you know, sort of, of, of period, you have this semi-useful report that two people use, you know? <laughs> but if you take a longer time horizon, when you think about creating the report, at the very beginning, you know, the, the person building the report thinks like, what's going to be most useful for marketers, right? And we deliver a version one. And then after a couple sprints, we end up with a, you know, universally accessible dashboard that many marketers can use. So that, that like shift and application of like product type thinking um, is so beneficial when you're doing road mapping and, and changes, I think, the way that you operate your team. So it's something I'm, I'm very excited about. There's there's some elegance there in what you just described about that reporting. I think Phil and I were both kind of chuckling from our past life. We lived a, we worked in a dashboarding BI company. It's how we we first got to know each other. And what you're describing there, like the underutilized reports, and then uh, how do you how do you frame your roadmap and your priorities around the future reports? I think there's a huge takeaway for our listeners there. So I definitely encourage people to rewind and listen to that really carefully. There's some really uh, elegant wisdom in there. Something else you said that I want to tee off of from, you know, managing MarTech like a product, something that is very still near to my uh, experience is this migration from Universal Analytics to Google Analytics 4. Uh, in my role as a consultant, I found and worked with many analytics implementations and tag management systems. And to my dismay, they were often abandoned you know, who owns the Google Take Manager instance? And there is nobody who owns it. And that person left four years ago. And I find that a lot of marketers have difficulty uh, prioritizing technical debt. And I'm I'm concerned, I guess, maybe around, you know, the explosion of MarTech tools. I know there's a cycle here that we've been talking about, but how do we manage this? How do we keep up with the constant change? As humans, we love shiny new objects, but Oftentimes we purchase this software, implement the software. And then if if you have a niche expert in-house who's managing it and, and getting the value out to your team and they move on, we know in tech, for instance, that people last in roles for like 18 months max, then what happens to this technology? What are your thoughts about ta tackling the MarTech technical debt that we're incurring over time? And how do we ensure like continuity and effectiveness in our MarTech strategy? I think that, one is, and I'm of course I'm biased, but I think this just shows how incredibly valuable an experienced MarTech professional is to an organization. Mm -hmm. Like if that person leaves and you bring in a more junior person to backfill the role, I think that there's, I think it sets the company back months, if not even years. I think if something like that were to happen. So, so that I think is the first thing that, and and I I think that a lot of the 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 you know companies that we admire and companies that we think are are doing really well I think their leadership actually recognizes that mm -hmm. um, so so I'm not too worried about that happening over time the the other one is like is is like what do you do about technical debt you know can you walk into <laughs> if you walk into a company and there's there's so much technical debt what 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 do you do um one th I I think that Technical technical debt is often the result of just inexperience and also short term thinking, you know, because that's that's like what we're doing. You have to pay down the debt that you incurred in the first place because you would weren't putting together. You weren't thinking long term about about if you if if it could scale or if if more marketers used it or you know if we needed to connect other tools. So so so. That's the reason that technical debt exists and it sucks to have to pay it back. I do think that if, if you know, because I came into to a, an organization where there was a lot of, a lot of things that, that um, needed to be done, you know, uh, to, 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 you know, uh, bring out the potential of our tech stack. But I feel like because 
I knew what was important and I knew how to prioritize and I knew like how to match which people to which tasks, we were able to make progress. Mm-hmm. So it's not like you, you, you don't, and that's why I like, I go back to the beginning of the, my, my first answer, which is like someone that's good at this stuff is invaluable, mm-hmm. you know, and it can really make the difference between if the organization from a technological standpoint moves forward or not. Um, um, so, so I don't, I, I, I say that because um, if you're in a rough spot where you lost your in-house expert, you know, um, the solution might just be bring in someone really great. <laughs> because they'll, they'll they'll eventually figure it out. Yeah, yeah. Bring someone great to like troubleshoot it, get get into the weeds and and figure it out. But I think if you if you lose someone on your team and they had all of that knowledge in their brain, and you at no point thought that it was valuable for them to sit down and document any of this, like I feel like it's it's as much on the manager and like you know I JT and I kind of live in in more of the startup world and it's way harder to prioritize documentation in in startups but there's even more turnover in startups so it's arguably even as important in in startups but yeah I think that like this is something I've learned throughout my career is like you you don't like at, at first I had this idea that like being this single point of failure uh if you get hit by a bus like there's so much value in you and like the company loses that with you leaving the company, but there's even more value in being the person who is able to share that knowledge and like create the documentation and say like, Hey, I could leave tomorrow and the company would function swimmingly because I've created these processes and the documentation that new people can come in asynchronously get trained up and like fix the technical debt. But all this documentation stuff is like easier said than done. Like it's about prioritizing it and and finding time to actually do it. Right. Yeah, I no, that's such a great point. The the I think that you're de- you're definitely doing the the company a disservice, and you're probably your your own team a disservice by not following proper proper documentation. I also think that if there's a you know a subject matter expert at the company that is like the single point of failure, I think that they're missing the part of developing their team members, the more junior members, to get to that level. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You should be raising the expertise of your team, both from a technical and strategic standpoint, so that you then become like not the single point of failure. And that levels you up to tackle even more problems. And one of those problems that I like to remember, it's, it's, it's is actually like innovation, mm-hmm. you know, like like if you're always thinking about how to solve technical problems, you need a little bit of space to create value for the future. And that's that I think is the realm where we all need to go. Like, don't look to vendors like like MarTech vendors to tell you how to do your marketing or how to build your tech stack. Like you need to come up with answers on your own by borrowing from other industries, borrowing from like what we're already doing right now we're borrowing from product managers like <laughs> like we're stealing all of their frameworks right so but like we're not learning that from vendors we're doing it in the field and we're discovering it as we go and you need to again level up your teams to free you up for for innovation and discovering things that are new creating things that are new yeah love that advice i think it's it's super important to easily forget that like you need to train up the folks on the team like share that documentation around but also share the results and and the impact of of your work and i know this is something that you're you're really big on one of your most famous posts on on linkedin is that big list of things not to do in marketing operations and the whole list itself like i think there's like 20 plus items on there and it's it's a masterclass in and of itself but there's 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 a few that resonate specifically with me and i'd love to unpack maybe two of those with you um so number 15 on your list is do not forget to share the results and the impact of your work uh more broadly and frequently so i'd love to hear like how how you've managed to do that like what does that look like practically is your team putting together an internal newsletter every week or every month about like here's the shit that our team shipped are you doing more like cross-functional meetings it's all hands like how how does that like look like practically yeah. So this is this is one that I think I learned the hard way 
especially as the size of your company grows, the amount of time you spend on internal communication and alignment, like it grows in proportion. So if you have a pretty small company, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the things that you do, like the impact is pretty obvious to your teammates because you're all in the same room, yeah. right? But as that grows and you now no longer know the names of everyone, <laughs> um, um, you know, that percentage of your time. So when I was at AWS, it's like 50%, which is a crazy number to some people, hmm. but also very true and also very wrong if you don't do that, if you don't dedicate that time. Hmm. Because there's so many people that you don't know and need to understand what you're doing. You're actually spending most of the time. So I also give that as career advice. Like, hey, if you don't want to spend 50% of your time in on communication, don't work for enterprise because that's literally <laughs> what you do. Half the time is, is, is communicate. Um, um, so, so the ways in which you, um, do that is, um, my favorites are quarterly business reviews, some sort of biweekly newsletter communication. That's kind of a list of, of, of the, the status of your project projects roadmap. Um, also internal wikis, I think are really great where you can kind of capture not only like the list of the roadmap and the projects and the status, but you can also have it contain tutorials, um, onboarding documentation, um, and then also house the recorded versions of your QBR, right? And I feel like this is a perfect way, like imagine either a new employee or someone that you've never met before gets introduced to your team. Like I like to, I like to tell my team like, Make it so that they don't have to talk to you. You know, they can see all of this and mm -hmm. watch the videos. And all of a sudden, when they meet you for the first time, they're up to speed. Mm -hmm. Why do we have to spend so much time when we meet new employees and say, go through the whole like yeah. shebang, right? Here, <laughs> here's our team. Here's what we're doing. Here's the road. How many times do you have to do that over and over again? You know what I mean? So, so like, like representing your team is, is an important part of your job. I think of it also. I also think about it in the same way as like a sports team. Like if you're in an open spot, like down the, in, uh, you know, in the field and you're not saying anything, like that's bad teamwork, you know? So, so, so doing things like this is the equivalent of saying, hey, I'm open, pass me the ball, you know, so you guys can, ever, so everyone can win. So I think that that's what I like to say as, as how important communication is to, to a marketing ops team. Uh, you know, selfishly, I wanted to ask one question around, uh, you know, kind of the division between, I guess, I always see it, Phil and I kind of divided, I guess, the podcast between the back end, the marketing operations, and then the front end, like the web, SEO, digital kind of things. But, you know, attribution tools, I think, are one of those kind of cool tools right nowadays that are bridging the gap between these two, these two functions. There's so many applications that you can use for attribution on the front end, you know, piping it into your web analytics, getting better demographic information, all this wonderful stuff. And obviously being able to pipe this into your marketing automation platform and being able to get better data uh, going, going that way. What excites me about this is this bridge between the, the two spaces. And I find particularly as like the front end guy, there's often a bit of a disconnect, at least in my experience between being able to get this data into these platforms and really communicating the value back and forth. Um, and we're talking a lot about composable tech as the future of MarTech. So I'm conflating a whole bunch of things, but I'm just curious how you see these types of tools playing out between the front end and back end of MarTech, like as marketing operations or marketing technologists, how do we kind of marry these two things? How do we make sure that everybody on the team is working both on like the technological level, making sure that they, things work and they're getting the most value out of them, um, but also on the people side of things that we're managing this like a product. And, you know, going back to your four pillars, managing managing according to the four pillars. So just curious on your take there. I use some sort of like guiding principles, I think, when we're trying to figure out how the technology should play together, how we need to work, what we need to prioritize. Um, one is that there's like the cascading OKR goal setting framework, right? And if, if you're not familiar with that, it's that, you know, it, 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 tra it essentially translates to there's the company goals mm -hmm. and then the marketing goals support the company goals. The marketing operations team goals support the marketing goals, right? So there's like, like the goals support each other. 
So there's this, there's this, there's, if, if you find yourself working and, and playing with platforms where it's not connected, you're kind of on, on the wrong track. The other thing is we have two, like there's no way, there's no way else to do with this. You have two customers when you're playing in marketing ops. You have the marketer and then you have the customer. Some people will think that there's only one, like one that matters, like only the marketers matter or, or when you, like when you develop tooling or develop processes, only the marketers matter. And then there's another train of thought where it's like, no, marketers, like it's not really important what they do. It's just the customers, whatever the customer's experience is like improving that customer experience and just leading with the data. Like that's the other, other thought. I don't think that that, I don't think it's a dichotomy. Marketing operations has to serve both, you know, and whether that's 50, 50 or whatever. So, so your roadmap a lot of times and the priorities that you get, um, they, they, they come from those two important partners. So the pain points of the marketers is something that you try to solve with your tooling and your process. The pain points of your customers also you try to solve for. So you try to solve with both. That I, that I think is kind of like the principles that I use, but I, I'd love to hear how, how you know, you both think of it, like how you marry those two, how you balance the, those out. As a work in progress, I think by and large, I think it comes back to some of the principles that you've discussed already up to this point, like, you know, radical levels of communication, making sure that you're communicating what you're doing, the value of what you're doing. I think that too often these tools are deployed in isolation. They're kind of nifty tools for a small segment of the team, but they're, you know, the rest of the team isn't getting a chance to take a look at them and really ideate on or innovate with these, these tools in their back pocket. So I think, I think communication is a really key component here. Yeah, definitely. Daryl, we're, we're getting close on time. I want to be uh, respectful of, of your time. So as you know, as a frequent listener, we, we finished the show with the the same question for all our guests and uh, we're recording this uh, in, at the end of November right now. And we just released our last season's recap of everyone's answers. So I'm curious, you know, as a director of marketing, a keynote speaker, a course instructor, an author, a consultant, and uh, a new newly minted uh, newsletter author as well, there isn't much you aren't doing these days in terms of like getting content out and, and helping folks in, in the MarTech and the marketing ops world. Uh, one question we ask all our guests is how do you remain happy and successful in your career? How do you find balance between all the things you're working on while staying happy? I think I got really lucky with the field that I went into um, because I really enjoy it. And um, I had this incredible experience this year. I gave a talk in Australia and um, af after the conference, I got to have dinner with Scott Brinker and Juan Mendoza. It was a, it was a very magical experience because we were at a restaurant, you know, and had a view of the Sydney Opera House. It was so great. Just the three of us, we were drinking wine and this same topic kind of came up. And I said, you know, like a lot of people asked like how I, I can do this and how busy I am. But I was, I said something to the effect of like, you know how you have hobbies, like you go kayaking or you play soccer on the weekends or hiking or something like this. This type of work, the, you know, really thinking about how the technology works, how to, how to forward marketing operations as an industry and how to help people that were like me, like stumbling along the way. That's my hobby. Like I think of it almost like playing a video game when I when I sit down and like pull up my <laughs> write my newsletter or whatever it is like I'm having that much fun um and so I, in that way and th and then the great part about it was you know both Scott and Juan immediately knew what I was talking about mm -hmm. they said it's the same like they said <laughs> I was I was preaching to the choir and um so so I think that in that way, I don't have to worry too much about like, you know, I think I think that you need to be a little bit more conscious of that when you're feeling very unenergized and demotivated by the work that you're doing. Um, it's it's a, just a good sign that that um, that that maybe a change is required. But I also recognize that not everyone's in that in that in that same place and don't have those options. So I will say that I I really got lucky. I'm I'm happy doing all of this. I I don't think I would rather be doing anything else. 
Love the answer. I definitely see a lot of your answer in uh, Juan and, uh, and and Scott's answer as well. We were just finishing recapping their answer because we had the pleasure of sitting down with both of them as well. And yeah, I think Scott says something like, uh, after a long day of working for a MarTech company and and like diagnosing MarTech problems, I sit down and I dive back into MarTech and marketing operations. <laughs> and I feel like that's a lot of what we do on the on the podcast as well. So yeah, definitely resonate and, and echo the sentiments there. This has been super fun, Daryl. Um, uh, anything you want to plug for, for the audience? I know uh, we're going to share a link to the newsletter you just launched. Um, but yeah, anything else you want to plug? I, I think that that's about it. You know, um, you know, if if uh, I would say that if you do receive my newsletter or follow my writing, you know, I definitely welcome the feedback, you know, love to hear what other people are working on, the challenges that they're having. And um, I'm debating adding this section where you can like write into the newsletter and mm. ask a question and then I'll answer it, you know, like like dear marketing operations leader, I'm struggling with this and then I can answer it on the um, uh, in each edition. So so. If anyone's willing to, if anyone's willing to do that or wants to write me a list of their problems, please. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you for having me, both uh, Phil and JT. And again, like great, great work with the podcast. Keep it up. Um, I look forward to each episode. Awesome. Thank you so much, Daryl. This is super fun. Really appreciate your time. This episode was also brought to you by Iterable. Your customers didn't fall in love with a robot. They fell in love with your brand. Your customer data can be more than generic conversation starters. They can be meaningful relationship starters. Iterable makes it easy to turn your data into joyful interactions. As a customer myself, along with companies like Redfin, Calm, and Box, I've seen how Iterable is leading the way as an AI-powered marketing automation platform. While the old guard is still struggling to update their user interfaces from the mid-2000s, Iterable is way ahead of the game with a drag-and-drop journey builders, A-B testing, and AI features. Iterable keeps you ahead of the game with the latest AI features so your customers continue falling in love with your brand over and over. Check them out at iterable.com and tell them we sent you.